I recently wrote an article called How to Be the Chief Wellbeing Officer of Your Own Life. But I'll admit it, sometimes I need the advice on how to do it as much as anyone else. Right now, we're all feeling burned out, unmotivated, and downright over it. Now is the perfect time to remind ourselves how to make our own well-being a priority. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Naz Beheshti. She's an executive wellness coach, corporate wellness consultant, speaker, writer, change agent, and wellness warrior. She's also the author of the book, Pause, Breathe, Choose, Become the CEO of Your Wellbeing. Naz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to start with who is Naz? Tell us your story and tell me how you became passionate about well-being. Well, I am an executive wellness coach and corporate wellness consultant. I started my own company, Prana Naz, about a decade ago after I felt that there was a huge gap in need for corporate wellness and a focus on employee well-being and leadership effectiveness. I started my career, uh, my first job out of college was as Steve Jobs' executive assistant. Mm -hmm. And it was a very stressful and an intense job, especially for a young person out of college who didn't have any other job to compare it to. And I continued working at other large corporations as well as a small uh, tech startup. So I had a diverse range of experience in uh, corporate America before I started my own company. And in the meantime, I was just so stressed and on the verge of burnout. And my colleagues were all experiencing similar uh, stresses and not having any of the tools or strategies to be able to manage and, and cope with the everyday stresses of work and life and really know how to build resilience. Like that was completely lacking back then. And so when I started to, um, you know, I started meditation practice and yoga practice, which were really helpful tools for me. And they were really what I felt uh, were my guiding uh, tools in terms of being well and doing well, because it really gave me such great like clarity of thought, peace, internal peace flexibility, strength, both in mind and body. And so to me, those were kind of my tools. But I went back to school to become a certified holistic health coach, also certified transformational coach and an an advanced NLP practitioner. And putting all those uh, trainings along with my psychology background together, I decided to start my own company and leave the corporate world, which part of it was uh, a bit, there was something missing. I loved you know, all the skills I learned in all the different companies and I loved the experience. However, I really, really wanted to start my own business to help people that were similar to me, which was the majority of the workforce who were experiencing stress and burnout. So I started Prananaz and, you know, I haven't looked back. I'm truly, I found my, my passion and my purpose. I was able to, you know, discover that luckily and then have the courage to pursue it and, and create a profession out of my passion, which I'm super grateful for every single day that I get to live my passion and purpose. 
Yeah, I, I, I know how that feels. <laughs> I, I feel the same way about my role at Deloitte. So you, you mentioned that you work for Steve Jobs as your, your first role out of college. Is there anything kind of in particular that you learned from him that has influenced your approach to work and life? Absolutely. He was highly influential in my life. I mean, my first boss and mentor. And then looking back, as he always says, you can only connect the dots looking backward. And mm. in hindsight, he really taught me um, all the healthy habits for high performance that I carry with me today and have created a business around because it seems he had cracked the code way back then when people were talking about holistic well-being. Nobody was really talking about it then or practicing it. And he truly was as much as people, you know, don't have that insight into him or never did. But I work closely, up close and personally with him. And I witnessed his daily mindfulness practice, his, you know, eating healthy, uh, exercising several times a day or week. And really adopting, he had adopted a healthy lifestyle. And he, more than anyone, showed by example that in order to do well, you must be well, and that well-being drives success. And mm -hmm. I've really developed my company around this philosophy because I truly, truly believe that. Yeah, absolutely. And did he promote that to others? Obviously, he was a role model, but was that part of his leadership style as well? Only by example. So the people that were very close with him, the exec team, and uh, I was in his office every day, so I saw it. But it wasn't something like how today people are promoting employee well-being and corporate wellness programs. It wasn't as common back then. And so right. he was doing it mostly for himself and whoever you know uh, wanted to emulate that would because they could, you know, learn by example. And people looked up to Steve and his, you know, visionary outlook and just his creativity. And a lot of that stems from taking care of yourself and having clarity of mind and just a mindfulness practice in general can really promote creativity and innovation. So you wrote a book and it's called Pause, Breathe, Choose. Tell me a little bit more about the book and, and what that means to you. So the book was really inspired by all of my teachings for over a decade, working with clients, uh, executives on an individual one-on-one -on -one coaching basis, as well as going into companies of all sizes and implementing corporate wellness programs. And like I said, it all started from you know helping manage stress and build resilience. So most of, even though my company practices a very holistic approach to well-being, and we don't look at just or focus on one area or aspect of one's life or one area of your well-being, it's really all-encompassing and holistic. However, the main key pillars the that drove most of the programs and where there was much need was around mindfulness, stress management and uh, passion and purpose. And so mm -hmm. I developed a method called the MAP method. And in my teachings and programs and workshops, I got such great response from, from what I was putting out there that I really based my book on what I've been teaching my clients for over a decade. And the book's framework is around my framework of teaching, which is the MAP method. And M stands for master mindfulness. And that's fundamental to the method in order to make better choices and um, just live a better life. And then 
Uh, the A stands for applying better choices for uh, managing stress and building resilience. And there's seven A's. And then the P's are, uh, the P stands for promote yourself to CEO of your well-being and the three P's. So when you put that framework together and practice the seven A's, mindful, have a mindfulness practice, implement the seven A's and the three P's, it's a framework, a holistic framework to live your best life. And that's really how I put together all of my teachings and programs that have been really effective. So it's been a proven effective uh, method for the past decade I've been using, and I'm really excited to put it out there for the masses, um, for people to have access to it without having to hire me as as a consultant <laughs> or coach. Well, well, thank you for that, and and congratulations, and and you you sound like you have a background in in management consulting with, with the, with the seven A's and the three P's and the framework. So uh, I think that will resonate with our listeners. Um, So you talked about working kind of with many different clients across many different industries with all kinds of different leaders. What is it that, that you think leaders get wrong about well-being in the workplace? That's an excellent question. I think what they get wrong is that they think that everybody else should be practicing it or it's like a just something to check mark the box that, oh, we're doing a wellness program, but then they're like disengaged. They're not a part of it. There's no buy-in from the top. So leaders are there to lead and lead by example. And if they're not actually participating and engaged in the program themselves, their team members may think it's, you know, not as important, or maybe they'll be seen as slacking off if they take time to actually take a lunch or, you know, um, do some exercise or go, go out for a walk in the middle of the workday or whatever the case, or just logging off at a decent hour at the end of the day. If the leaders aren't emulating the behavior that uh, they want to see or want their team to practice, it's much more difficult for for the company to adopt these healthier, you know, habits and lifestyle because they should be looking at it uh, from the top and uh, top-down approach is always more effective than just handing it off to HR and having HR figure it out on their own. It shouldn't be siloed. It should be completely engaged with the entire company. Well, and and leaders need self-care too, right? To be oh, a <laughs> great sustainable leader. So so how do you how do you get them to change their mindset around this? Well, to to your point that they need self-care and to um, take care of themselves is that starting small for them when I coach um one-on-one, I I work very small steps, taking small incremental steps. So When they realize the benefit of doing something small for themselves, whether it's incorporating exercise or eating better or more sleep, and they see the benefits of how they feel, how they perform, the host of benefits that come with taking care of yourself, that Mm -hmm. promotes intrinsic motivation for them to keep going. I had a client the other day who hadn't taken a, a vacation for years, and he took he did a staycation, took a long weekend, and um, he came back. It was just three days off, unplugged, took off with his dog, and just went out in the woods and and, d- and did some hikes, and you know, just unplugged and came back. And I had a session with him the following week, and he says, "I cannot believe how good I feel and how different it is just to take." 
just a short amount of time off and I'm going to continue doing that. So he, he felt the benefit immediately and that gave him motivation to keep that up. And, and then it actually motivated him to add more to, you know, cause I always start with tiny steps, but then I add, add to those steps. Once they adopt that as a habit, then I build on that step to create a new habit and then a new habit instead of giving them a bunch of things they need to do or stop, need to stop doing, which is overwhelming in itself. So, you know, small steps for uh, sustainable success is the way to go. Love it. And habit stacking. I love that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, you, you talked a little bit about your own story and, you know, what you were seeing around you at the time related to workplace burnout. And obviously, since then, burnout has been designated a mental and psychological diagnosis by the World Health Organization. It's an epidemic in the workplace. And now pandemic fatigue, I think, is really exacerbating the issue for so many people. So what can we do to help prevent um, ourselves from burning out? There's so many things you can do. And the bit, the best advice is to find what works for you because there's not, I can, so my book offers over 80 proven strategies mm -hmm. to avoid burnout and to adopt mindfulness. Top, what are your top five then? <laughs> <laughs> but top five, I would say, is to start uh, with a morning routine or some sort of block out some time in your day to do whatever it is that makes you feel good. So have some time for yourself. So I have a morning routine. I call it the RPM squared. I rise, pee, meditate for 20, followed by 20 minutes of movement. And the reason I shared a little TMI there was because to build a habit um, that, that lasts and stick is to uh, attach it to a habit that you already do every day, whether it's, you know, waking up and going to the restroom the first thing in the morning or brushing your teeth or drinking coffee. So that becomes a prompt or a trigger according to mm -hmm. BJ Fogg's tiny habits, which I love. And so when you attach it to something you're already doing and you make it really small, you have um, better chance of success because you don't need that intrinsic motivation of tackling something big like, oh, I'm going to meditate now for 20 minutes. I would never suggest to start with 20 minutes. If you don't have a meditation practice, I would suggest to start with two minutes, just sitting still, focusing on your breath. So whatever it is for you, the best thing I do with my clients is I sit there while we're in the session and say, okay, look at your calendar. When, what block of time can you uh, commit to every single day, whether it's in the morning or in the evening, however, whatever looks best for you on your calendar that you could stick to, block that off in your calendar. And, you know, I always talk about how everything on your calendar is so important, but you are just as important, if not, in my opinion, more important than anything on your calendar, because for you to take care of yourself makes you a better leader, makes you a better partner, parent, uh, whatever role you have in this world, you can come as your best self when you are taking care of yourself. So meditation is one, exercise, moving your body. Um, I like to practice mindful self check-ins throughout the day, which are rapid fire questions that I ask myself throughout the day sporadically. And I just ask, you know, am I breathing? Am I thirsty? Am I, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? 
Uh, what is my posture? Am I hunched over or sitting up straight? And I correct myself. I autocorrect. I drink my water. I sit up straight. I take mindful breaths. So just mindful self-check-ins throughout the day. And then lastly, one of my favorites is a gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. I bring gratitude to the dinner table every night with my husband and ask him, what was the most, um, what are you most grateful for that happened today? And we share our gratitude. And if you don't have anyone that you sit with at the dinner table, you could journal your gratitude. You could also have a gratitude buddy and, you know, commit to sharing one to three things you're grateful for every day through a phone call or text or however you want to do it, or just journal it on your own. But gratitude is linked to happiness. And it's really hard to be actually impossible to be angry and have gratitude at the same time. So if you're ever feeling stressed or burnt out or frustrated, think of something you're grateful for. It's and some days I have to be honest, I think it's god hard. there's nothing yeah, there's <laughs> nothing to be grateful for today. Totally hard, but then you just I force myself. There yeah. there's got to be something and then that makes you feel better alone just that that seems like a um, point of accomplishment when you think there's nothing to be grateful for and you force yourself to think of something because there always is something yeah. you're just need to look at your life through a different lens, a positive lens. Let's talk about boundaries and and saying no. In particular in, in you know in kind of high performance cultures or high performing individuals, I know I struggle with it even though <laughs> even though I know what to do, I know what to say. Um, it's really hard to say no sometimes because we feel like we're letting other people down. So let's talk about that. Yeah, that's a good one. So many of my clients have that uh, problem as well. Like just it's a challenge and it's just that you really need to get in the mindset, shift that mindset of, you know, if you don't say no, what is the alternative? If you keep saying yes, yes, yes to everything, you're going to have so much on your plate and not only are you, you know, going to compromise the work because it's just there's only a certain amount of hours in the day and you can't just um, keep saying yes to everything, but you're going to compromise your well-being. So it becomes counterproductive as much as you don't want to say no if you shift the perspective of if you keep saying yes, what is going to be the outcome? Is your work going to be, you know, um, as good? Is the outcome of your work going to be as good as if you were to focus on the things that you should focus on and prioritize rather than to keep taking more things on your plate? So I I highly recommend creating a list of the things that are your highest priorities and um, equating that to kind of how much time is that going to take of you? How much time and energy? So not just time, but energy. And and then uh, prioritizing that so that you know what you're, you need to focus on are your yeses. And then from there, instead of saying, you know, you can't take something else on, you're choosing not to because mm-hmm. you're going to focus on what you've already committed to and can't is a little bit disempowering because it, it seems like you're unable, like you don't have the skills or, you know, you, you just can't do it. But it's not that you can't. It's that you are taking control and charge of your life and your work and you know what you can do, what you've a- allocated um, time and energy wise of what you can do versus 
what you want to take on, but you're not going to give it your 100% and your all because you just are focused on other things. So can't and choosing not to is a good mindset shift. And also delegating um, the things that you don't necessarily need to do. And you might want to take some of those um, yeses and the things that you're already doing as yeses, delegate some of those if you don't necessarily need to do them, and then prioritizing all, all the yeses and looking them at them as a like from a holistic lens, in other words. If you aren't kind of a, at a leadership level or for whatever reason, you just don't you know, you don't feel comfortable, what do you suggest in terms of how to have that conversation? I just went through this with uh, a client last week, and she was very much uh, dreading this difficult conversation. And what I had uh, suggested was to make a list of all the things she's done, what the things she's been is doing currently, and the things she foresees being assigned to her or what, you know, is coming in the future, and then prioritize like color code uh, what she feels is in her, you know, uh, her strongest skill set area and what she can and the other um, like projects or things that is on that list, items on the list, what she could delegate or what she thinks you know, she could do differently with those and come to the meeting with her boss uh, with a solution mindset rather than saying, I have too much on my plate and just like complaining about it, kind of really look at it pragmatically and put it in an Excel spreadsheet or just put it out on paper so that uh, your boss could visually see everything. Because I, I always say maybe your boss isn't aware of all the things on your plate and you need to communicate that because they're busy doing their own things and they might not know that, you know, um, the employee is getting things, um, assignments or projects from other departments or, you know, different heads. And so to put it all in front, like on a platter for them to see, like, this is everything. Um, and this is what I suggest. And then it's taking initiative. And again, it's all about taking charge of your time and energy and coming with a solution mindset that here's what I think would be best. What do you think? You know, so that they, you give them some input instead of just coming in with a negative mindset of I'm I'm exhausted or I have too much on my plate, but here here's a solution that I'm thinking. I guess on the flip side, if you are a leader of people in in the workplace, are there are there things that leaders can do to create that safe dialogue, that psychological safety, and um, you know, really encourage their employees to have those conversations with them? Because truthfully, it's you know, having those conversations is for the is for the good of everyone, for the good of the company. Um, because when you know, when employees burn out, it's not just bad for the employee; it's bad for the organization as well. So, um, what can leaders do? Yeah. So psychological safety, creating that psychological safety for employees to feel comfortable to share is is really important in all companies to have a positive and strong company culture and uh, community. I suggest when um, my executive clients want to connect more, and especially now during COVID, feeling so disconnected and not having that kind of open, physical open door policy, I suggest having spontaneous check-ins or even in your scheduled one-on-one meetings uh, with your direct reports, just asking them, 
you know, what what's going on, what's new and good, and where can I help support you more? Or where do you need support? So maybe it's not the actual executive or boss um, going to be supporting directly, but offering support and the resources, because it may not come from them, but where do you need support? And how could that person, that boss help. So it's really about, um, again, communicating it and over-communicating in the time of living in this virtual world that we're in where people are feeling very isolated at this time more so than ever. So I highly suggest that they just check in more and not just be about work, but also make it be about their life. Because, you know, just as we're always on Zoom or in the virtual world, we see, you know, the kids walk by, the pets walk by, we're like seeing people's kitchens and living rooms. I mean, we're very in people's personal lives at this time where remote work and, you know, work and life has been blurred completely. And so why not, if we're seeing all this and hearing all this where we normally didn't pre-COVID about their personal lives, why not actually make the intention and intend to be more personal and and ask how people are doing on a personal and professional level. Yeah. And I mean, along those lines, um, what can leaders and, and colleagues do in particular for those employees that are that are isolated, that don't live with others, that don't, you know, have family members or roommates or even pets? What are some best practices for making sure that those people are kind of feeling the human connection, um, albeit virtually. So one thing that's been working uh, for a lot of my clients, they said they've gotten some good response that I suggested is to have a weekly virtual lunch, this Mm. or coffee, whatever, if you don't want to eat in front of the camera, because (laughs) that could be a little awkward, but a a weekly virtual gathering that is optional. You do not have to come because some people might think, oh, another virtual you know, event um, or whatever the case. But if you just plan something on the calendar that's standing just between your team members, you know, like something intimate, not like a huge um, gathering, but just between your uh, like kind of smaller team, people can have the choice to gather and just show up and just have conversation, you know, not about work necessarily, but just, you know, you're having a coffee break or a lunch break and just connecting. And that's one way to do a group connection like that, that people can just hop on and they'll have some of their colleagues there or do a one-on-one um, connection. There are apps out there that promote uh, connection between people, whether it's professional or personal, that you can connect uh, on a weekly or daily or however often basis and keep that connection and just like that personal connection alive, even at work in the professional environment. And, and are there, I mean, are there things that um, in this environment that we should be looking for in others if they're kind of not raising their hand and, and asking for help or openly kind of saying that they need something or they're, you know, it's, it's a lot easier in person to see when someone's behavior changes. What does that look like in a, in a virtual world? So that looks like someone being disengaged, not speaking up, being extra quiet, uh, not, you know, responding in the way that they used to. So if you see a shift in behavior, so you know, this person 
used to be a bit more outgoing or more bubbly or or whatever the case pre-COVID. And now you've you've noticed a shift, whether it's, you know, the opposite, like being, like I said, disengaged or more quiet, that's that is a symptom of, you know, depression, actually. Mm-hmm. If it's and so you want to be aware of actually what's not being said, because most people who are depressed and who are alone kind of s- stick to themselves, stay with themselves and don't have the, you know, courage or whatever uh, to raise their hand and say, I need help. They Maybe they don't even know they need help. So, right. so they could just be slipping into, you know, chronic stress or, or depression. And so that's why it's really important for leaders to kind of keep tabs and in those one-on-one meetings, really check in on a, a personal basis, uh, individual basis to see how people are doing. And if there is that kind of, they notice that they, their attitudes or their, you know, mindset about things have kind of shifted in a way that's not uh, typical for that person, they, they need to, they need some help. I mean, you need to check in with them and ask how things are going and get them the resources because they could be slipping into chronic stress or um, depression. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's switch gears a little bit. Obviously, you're a very busy professional, and um, you spend a lot of your time helping you know others help themselves and and practice self care. So you you talked a little bit about RPM squared, right? That's what it was called. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, your your morning ritual of RPM squared. But how like how else do you personally incorporate well being into your life? Well, well-being is my non-negotiable. So the way I start my day is everything to me. If I wake up and skip RPM, which I typically do not do, I'm very, my RPM squared is non-negotiable for me. But sometimes there's something that is, needs my attention super early in the morning. And I, um, you know, I don't sacrifice my sleep. I'll sleep, you know, and take that time for my sleep rather than waking up even earlier to do what I need to do. But I, that morning ritual is non-negotiable. So I do that. And then I also eat really healthy. I, you know, eat um, really organic, clean foods and foods that most likely don't come in a package that I can't pronounce the ingredients, you know, like just try to be as clean as possible. And that sustains my energy levels because I talk about energy versus time management. And Mm -hmm. for me, you are what you eat. And when I eat, you know, crappy food, for example, that just is not really even food, which I don't do anymore, but I used to. And so I do know uh, what it's like to eat foods that don't actually nourish you, that don't have the the proper nutrients to actually nourish you, but it's kind of like fake food. It's not really food. I'm talking about convenient foods, you know, that you get on the run. And uh, that I'm very, very, uh, you know, mindful of what goes into my body, what I consume, and then also what um, goes into my body in terms of my thoughts. So mm. mindset and behavior for me and the choices that you make every day are are critical in how you um, show up in the world. And for me, I, because my mindfulness practice has made me super aware, you know, so I have, you know, high self-awareness. Um, I, 
I catch myself when I let my inner critic kind of take over for a minute and then I realize, oh, that's my inner critic talking and I'm going to no longer pay attention to it and then kind of hone in into my inner coach, my inner coach who Mm. tells me to take a pause. You know, I use the pause, breathe, choose method, the title of my book, all day long. I take a pause when I see that I'm spiraling and letting my inner critic get the best of me. And I have to have that mindfulness to know that I need to take that pause because if not, I would let that inner critic just keep going and I would listen to it and feed it. And it would basically the dog that you feed, which is the bad dog, uh, the inner critic that I talk about in my book, is the life that you lead. And I choose to feed the good dog, which is the inner coach, but sometimes inner critic you know, kind of gets in there and uh, I have to quiet it down uh, by feeding the inner coach. And so my mindset and my behaviors are the two things I'm very, very aware of throughout the day in terms of my well-being. So that that is, you know, accounts for my meditation, the food I eat, my sleep is extremely important to me. I need at least eight hours of sleep or minimum seven, but preferably eight or even nine. And some people might be gasping right now, but I need my sleep and I treasure my sleep. And I I'm love not, I'm not gasping sleep. at all. I'm, I'm oh, right good. there with you. I Sleep is one of my favorite things to talk about and one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> oh, good. Me, me too. Oh my gosh. I love it because- you know, so many executives that I coach, they they wear their lack of sleep like a badge of honor. I only need four or five hours of sleep. And I'm like, really, how's that going for you? Like, how are you performing? Um, some of the sometimes people do need less sleep. So I'm not going to say that they're wrong. But what I do challenge people who say they only need four or five hours of sleep, I say, how about tonight and for the next week, try to increase it by 30 minutes yeah. or even an hour. And see how that feels. Do you feel differently? And most of the time, they can't can't even believe what an extra 30 to 60 minutes does for them. They just, when you don't know, you don't know, right? But then it's about giving them a glimpse and experience and a, a taste of what it feels like, what the benefits are, rather than me telling them what they are, experience it for yourself. And then tell me, you tell me what it's all about instead of me telling you, <laughs> you know, yeah, that sleep's amazing. Absolutely. I tell people if you if you just go to bed 20 minutes earlier every night for a year, you're getting over 5,000 more minutes of sleep than you did in the prior year. And the impact that that has on your daily life and how you show up, but also your long-term health. I mean, it's it's monumental. <laughs> um, and, back, and back to your point earlier, you know, tiny habits, right? And so it's 20 or 30 minutes makes mm-hmm. a huge, you know, is a huge difference. Of course, I'd love it if everybody got between seven and eight hours, but you know, if they can just add on 20 or 30 minutes, I'll take it. <laughs> I completely agree. I couldn't agree yeah. with you more because it is so, I mean, sleep. So I had the um, honor of working with, I don't know if you know, Dr. Uh, Matthew Walker. Yes. He's a One of okay. my heroes. <laughs> yes. I love him. The author of Why We Sleep. And I worked with him briefly at UC Berkeley many years ago. And he says, uh, in order to get restorative sleep, you must ask yourself one question. And it's, can you wake up without an alarm and uh, not rely on caffeine or stimulants for the rest of the day and be good, like function well for the whole day? And if you answer yes to that, 
you're getting restorative sleep. But if you you can't wake up without an alarm and you need the caffeine or stimulants to get you through the day, then you're not getting restorative sleep. And so I love that because that is a good indicator based on his research, whether you're getting good sleep or not. And sleep, and he also says that sleep is the single most effective way to um, reboot your, basically all the cells in your body. Yeah. Every night. And you need that. You need to reboot every night. So people who pull all nighters or or sacrifice their sleep in order to, you know, make a deadline or, you know, do whatever they need to do is actually doing themselves a disservice because there's been a ton of research that says even if you're not prepared, whether you're a student and are studying for an exam or you're about to go give, you know, a pitch at work or whatever the case, it's better to be refreshed and sleep than to use those extra hours and sacrifice your sleep to prepare for whatever it is that you're preparing for the next day. The sleep supersedes that. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's fascinating to me that there are, I mean, you know, none of us want to get operated on by a surgeon that (laughs) that is completely sleep deprived. We don't want a pilot that's completely sleep deprived. We don't want our truck driver, you know, I mean, there are so many professions that for a long time have recognized this, but in, in the corporate world, you know, we tend to, to kind of celebrate, you know, the, the, the person that stays up and pulls an all nighter and, and, you know, um, without realizing the harm that they're doing to themselves, but also, you know, the work product. So it, you know, it's kind of a lose, lose, not a win, win. (laughs) Exactly. That's what I, we are speaking the same language. (laughs) We are. So I have one, uh, we could go on forever, but I have one (laughs) final question and you may have already answered this with the things that you've said, but do you have a personal definition of well-being? Yeah. Well, well-being for me is being happy, energized, engaged, and in all areas of your life. So it's not just a lot of people think of well-being of like health and wellness, and, and it's just like one area of your life. But for me, it's having healthy relationships. It's having a fulfilling career and a sense of purpose. It's having a um, mindfulness practice or, again, sense of purpose, whatever that means for you. It's it's eating well. It's sleeping, getting good sleep. It's exercising regularly. And um, all of that combined, to me, well-being is a very holistic approach to showing up as your best self, fully engaged, happy, and healthy in all areas of your life. Well, I love it. And I can't think of a better note to end on than that one. So thank you, Naz, so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us on the show today. Thank you so much, Jen. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so grateful Naz could be with us today to talk about well-being and leadership. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.